we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. You're listening to Done By Law. Brought to you by the Federation of Community Legal Centres. You're tuning in to Done By Law at 3CR on 855 AM. We acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional and rightful custodians of the land on which we are broadcasting from. We pay our respects to elders and acknowledge that this land was stolen and never ceded, always was and always will be Aboriginal land. It's 6pm on the 20th of September 2022 and we are your hosts, Dylan and Jeremy. A trigger warning for our listeners today. We'll be discussing sexual violence and sexual offending. If you're impacted by our program, please stop listening and contact Lifeline on 131 114 or Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636. On the 31st of August this year, the Victorian government announced law reforms to change the way Victorian law deals with sexual violence. These laws make changes to the way that consent is viewed and move to shift scrutiny of victims and back onto perpetrators of sexual violence. Joining us today are two guests to discuss these changes. Dr. Rachel Bergen is a lecturer in criminal justice and criminology at the Swinburne Law School and the CEO of Rape and Sexual Assault Research and Advocacy, known as RASARA. Sean Ginsberg is an experienced criminal trial and appellate advocate who appears for both defence and prosecution and is also a member of the Criminal Bar Association. Thank you for joining us. The Victorian Law Reform Commission identified Victoria had previously used a communicative consent model. Critics of the new affirmative consent laws have said that it does not achieve true affirmative consent. There are different interpretations of affirmative consent with these changes. Now, my first question is for for Dr. Bergen. Does Victoria now have affirmative consent under these new laws? Affirmative consent has a, a fixed meaning. It's a theory of consent. So legal approaches must reflect the elements of that theory in order to constitute an affirmative standard. Now, these changes in Victoria do not reflect all of the elements of the theory of affirmative consent. And so you cannot say that affirmative consent has been achieved in law. What these changes are seeking to do is to, I guess, achieve um, the, or remove the ability for people to rely on sexist attitudes and rape myths in arguing that they had a reasonable belief in consent. So instead, under an affirmative standard, belief in consent can only be considered reasonable if a person took active steps to make sure that they had consent. Um, the law does some good in that it does ensure that people do have to take steps to make sure that they have consent from another person. But again, the changes undermine this principle by uh, failing to require that those steps happen at the time of and throughout a sexual act. That timing issue is really key to affirmative consent. So no, we can't say that these reforms achieve affirmative consent. Thanks, Rachel. And um, 
are there other jurisdictions mm. that have done, you know, differently or in your eyes a, a better um, have achieved affirmative consent and the model in in law? Have you had any other experiences with that? Yeah, so I guess the best practice you would say in Australia at the moment is Tasmania, although there are still areas of law in that jurisdiction um, that require attention. Um, but a apart from that, we really, you know, I, I guess you, you, you know, you're drawing on the the um, changes in New South Wales. New South Wales fell short in the same stages as Victoria, largely because Victoria took New South Wales lead uh, on this on these the most most recent suite of reforms. And 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 going from that, what what does Tasmania have that? the Victorian and New South Wales laws don't have? Um, Tasmanian law does not um, have a requirement that the steps taken to ascertain consent happen, you know, all have to happen a reasonable time before a sexual act. And it's that kind of vague terminology and the concerns we have around, you know, how reasonableness in that circumstance is going to be um, understood by the jury that really undermine affirmative consent. Thanks, Rachel. Um, and I'll just I'll turn to you, Sean, in terms of um, your interpretation of affirmative consent and how you believe the Victorian law did or did not reflect affirmative consent and how those the changes to the law have changed that as well. Well, I think that, Dylan, um, what I can most helpfully do is describe what the law is um, and whether that is satisfies some people's definition of affirmative consent can be left to other people. But since at least 2015, um, the law has required uh, that in order for an accused person to be able to rely upon the defence of consent, there firstly has to be positive communication of consent um, by the other party. So uh, since at least 2015, the other person being silent or not protesting uh, can't be consent. And secondly, um, there has since 2015 been a requirement for reasonable belief in consent. So whatever positive communication of consent has occurred, um, that has to give rise to a belief in consent that is reasonable. Um, so that is what the law has been since 2015. Uh, and what the most recent change does uh, in 2022 is to create an additional requirement that the accused point to evidence that they did something to obtain that positive communication of consent. So, so that's that's the state of the law as it's been since 2015 and the change that has been brought about um, by the, the recent amendment. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science, and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. 
After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains. And the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. Thanks for that, Sean. Um, just if we could continue on that. You've discussed um, changes in the law regarding consent um, with these types of matters. The intention for the most recent amendments are, in the Victorian Parliament's words, to protect and promote the rights of victims of sexual offences. Can you tell our listeners whether you feel that these amendments, particularly the changes to the definitions of consent, achieve this intention? Well, I don't think that these changes will make any significant difference um, to the experience of victims in trials. Um, my experience from having been um, involved in many, many criminal trials is that the difficulty with sexual offence cases uh, stems from um, some common facts. Uh, one is that sexual offences will continue to be difficult to prove where the burden of proof uh, is beyond reasonable doubt. So there's a very high standard of proof. Um, and if there is a dispute between the accused and the alleged victim, uh, and there's no other evidence that helps to resolve that dispute, um, sexual offences will continue to be difficult to prove even with these changes. Uh, and for the same reasons, uh, criminal trials concerning sexual offences will continue to be very closely focused on the words and actions of both the alleged victim and the accused. Um, and so for a victim of a sexual offence, um, these factors will continue to mean that criminal trials will sometimes be a very difficult and uh, ultimately disappointing experience. Uh, Dr. Bergen, uh, just with the same question to yourself, um, do you feel that these amendments, um, particularly the, those changes, uh, I know that um, your view is that it's perhaps not quite there yet in terms of affirmative consent, but do you feel that the changes have at the very least worked towards the intention to, again, in their words, protect and promote the rights of victims of sexual offences? I think it's fair to say that the laws or the changes will go some way to protect survivors of sexual violence um, in that they have the potential to shift fo the focus of the criminal trial. Um, and, and at least, you know, the investigation of a report of a sexual offence, um, you know, away from the actions of the survivor themselves and onto those of the accused. But I agree with, with Sean there, you know, it, sexual offences will continue to be difficult to prove. Um, this is an area of law that is fraught. We are not going to legislate our way out of the epidemic of sexual violence in this country. Um, but I think particularly what this round of reforms achieves that wasn't achieved in 2015 
is providing some clarity around the fault element. So, you know, the issue of reasonable belief and issues that can be considered in relation to whether a belief is reasonable. So the law did, um, you know, already have provisions about what can be considered in relation to whether or not a person gave, you know, what I'll call actual consent. Um, but we still saw that in practice, those same issues that the law said didn't go to consent could go to reasonable belief in consent. Now, that's not in line with community expectations. So this law does, I suppose, reflect what victim survivors are asking for, and that's positive. Um, but I think in terms of promoting the rights of victims more broadly, you know, although, although these laws do play a role, uh, we need whole of system responses. You know, we need attitudinal change among professionals within the legal system. We need changes to policy and procedure beyond the substantive law um, that, that have direct experiences or sorry, in, impact on experiences of, um, of survivors who are engaging in the process of justice. So we need more, but it's a start. Thanks, Rachel. Uh, in terms of um, policy and educational reform that uh, may come alongside um, the changes to the law, do you think, you know, if there's significant investment in education around the changes to, to the law, that it would, you know, go some way into what you're saying in terms of changing, like, the the culture around sexual violence or do you still think you know I, I know education is often said to be the solution of a lot of things but um in your view do you think it it will change something or is there more to the story um education always changes something um but it's again none of these things are silver bullets in and of themselves we need to you know, in order to prevent sexual violence, um, which I, which is everybody's goal, right? We, we actually want to see less cases having to even go to court and, and to be heard because we want less people experiencing sexual violence. So um, with that in view as the goal, I think we, we have to look at the broader prevention landscape in our communities. So not just within the criminal justice system, we need increased funding and resourcing to specialist services, whether they're response services or primary prevention services, again, you know, outside the criminal justice system. But we also need our response system to be, to include, I guess, multiple pathways. So, you know, going through a trial should not be the only pathway to justice um, in relation to sexual offences. Um, the Victorian Law Reform Commission, you know, have just wrapped up a review which, which led to these uh, law reforms, but part of what their recommendations from that review was that, you know, we need restorative justice. We need, um, you know, financial um, support for survivors who, you know, we know survivors lose, um, are more likely, to, you know, if, if someone's raped on campus at the university campus, they drop out of university. They have barriers to to their own education. They uh, drop out of employment. So we need to address those problems within the broader community. And that's all part of this kind of puzzle of justice that we have to think about, not just, you know, are we seeing a criminal justice response? We need to think more holistically about the community's response to sexual violence. Sean, um, just in, in terms of picking, just picking up something um, 
that Rachel said earlier about the shifting of the focus of criminal investigations onto the accused's behaviour. Now, um, I know there's been some criticism about the changes to the laws around potentially creating unjust outcomes. Do you have any other kind of views on the potential consequences for, for accused persons? Uh, yes, so I, when the issue arises of consent, uh, whether it arises during a police investigation or at a trial, um, the police and the courts are not dealing with an offender and a victim survivor necessarily. Um, they are dealing with an accused person who is entitled to the presumption of innocence and who may in fact be innocent. So in dealing with the issue of consent, um, the police and uh, a jury in a criminal trial have to deal with disputed evidence about communication surrounding uh, an episode of sexual activity. Um, that communication is often subtle and non-verbal. And by the time a case goes to trial, uh, or even by the time it gets reported, evidence about that communication may be uncertain or incomplete. So my, my concern about these ch changes, I, I agree with a lot of what Rachel said, particularly about affirmative justice, uh, sorry, restorative justice, and I'll come to that in a minute. But my concern about these changes, and, and these concerns are shared by the criminal bar, that these changes make the law of consent more prescriptive and more complicated. And that places a greater burden on the accused um, who doesn't have to prove their innocence, but it nonetheless places a greater burden on the accused to provide or point to evidence about what happened. And because of that, there is a greater risk that innocent people may be wrongly convicted because they can't provide or point to evidence or fill in gaps that exist in the evidence about what happened during an encounter. Um, and you don't need to look any further than uh, a, a, a common example of two people who have uh, a, a sexual encounter when they are intoxicated or drug affected to an extent that they are unable or unwilling to appreciate. Um, so that's the concern about adding layers or steps or prescriptions or complications about the law of consent. Um, it's fine to say that consent must be communicated and a belief in consent must be reasonable, uh, but to start to lay out a procedure um, that is a very commendable model for good sexual behaviour, but there are problems in making that a test for determining whether someone is guilty of a serious criminal offence, which is a different question. No crime, no time. Fix Victoria's bail loss now. Prisons are bursting at the seams with poor people. Istra Melbourne is calling on the Victorian government to release unsentenced people on remand from Victorian prisons. First Nations people are 3% of the population, yet represent 29% of the general prison population. 89% of First Nations women entering prison are unsentenced. 
Isja Melbourne is asking you to sign the No Crime, No Time petition, which can be found on Isja Melbourne's Facebook page. Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Thanks for that, Sean. And I, I guess just going on from there, I'll, I'll just ask you first and then I'll um, turn to Rachel. Yeah. In, in regards to this, uh, the way that these matters are heard, quite often um, because of the seriousness of them, they, they are heard before a jury. There are yeah. um, certain um, arguments to be made about whether these should proceed by way of judge alone or whether jury is still the golden standard. Do you have an opinion on which way um, would provide the more just outcomes? Um, I don't think that either, I, I'm a great believer in the jury system, and but I think with respect, that's really a distraction. I think one of the keys lies in what Rachel said that there has to be more there has to be a whole of system approach um we can't uh we can't assume that tinkering with the criminal law uh is going to legislate away this problem um we have to recognize that there are certain cases where uh there should be more readily available alternatives to criminal prosecution uh given the potential that has to uh disappoint victim survivors and restorative justice uh, is something that needs to be far more readily available. Uh, victim survivors um, need to uh, have that option presented to them um, in appropriate cases, uh, and that's that that is still not the case. Um, the the default mode is criminal prosecution, and I think that creates uh, expectations that. Uh, lead to disappointment in some cases. Uh, and Rachel, I guess just on that topic of uh, judge alone and jury, uh, just noting the the um, answer that you gave before about cultural um, issues and, and long-standing rape culture and, and things like that. Um, with that in mind, do you feel that um, judge alone or jury would make a difference? Yeah, this is a really good question, and it's something that that you know that often comes up in this space. I I don't think that you know getting rid of juries will fix anything. There's no evidence, firstly, that that judges have better views than um, than juror members in terms of rightness. They they might be better at applying um, legal principles, but um, that doesn't necessarily follow that they are less likely to um, to to hold these problematic and incorrect uh, beliefs about. Um, rape, rape victims, or or people who are, who commit the crime of rape. Um, but I also think that we need to start being realistic about the cases that are coming to um, to the police and then into courts. You know, to, to use Sean's example, you know, we're talking about people who are intoxicated. Well, a person who's intoxicated can't consent. The law is clear there. Um, or, or I should say, it's, <laughs> the law says that. I don't know if it's clear. That's a whole other debate um, <laughs> that we might run out of time for. But um, the law does say that if you're intoxicated to you know, a certain extent, then, then you can't consent. But you know, these situations where we're talking about hypotheticals, two people who are intoxicated and have sex, uh, you know, uh, are those cases are really the ones 
that are coming before the court. You know, we, we deal a lot in hypotheticals, but the reality is that affirmative consent has operated in Tasmania and also in Canada for nearly two decades without controversy, um, without, you know, great evidence or any evidence, as far as I'm aware, of unjust outcomes. Um, you know, we've been asking to see evidence of them. You know, my evidence is that they don't exist. So, um, you know, we want to see if, if, if the law is leading to unsafe convictions, then we don't support that law. But there's no evidence that that's what's happening. So I think we do need to um, focus on developing a, a rich evidence base around affirmative consent and how it practices, how it sort of plays out in the context of Australian rape trials. But at this stage, I don't see any evidence that it is leading to unjust outcomes or, you know, convictions of people uh, who didn't you know, or shouldn't be convicted. Um, the, the other issue is around what victims want. You know, we're, we're talking about restorative justice and uh, Sean said, you know, that the default is the criminal justice response and that's true. And it's not necessarily what victims want. Um, if you speak to victims or survivors, they want recognition of the harm that they've experienced. There's got to be other ways we can do that and ways we can do that better. Um, you know, at the moment we use jury trials. I think, I think we really need to think differently about what justice means for different people in the community um, and stop thinking in this binary where a person is guilty or innocent and that means that the victim didn't experience sexual harm because that's not the reality. Um, you know, there's high-profile cases where we can read the judgment of the of of a judge who decided the case alone. And, uh, you know, the judges find often that um, the survivor was not consenting, but at the same time, the accused had a reasonable belief. That accused, you know, person didn't commit the crime, but it doesn't mean that sexual harm wasn't experienced by the other person. So we have to interrupt this binary way of thinking about guilt or innocence and recognise that harm can exist outside of that. Thanks, Rachel. It definitely sounds like a fair, uh, sorry, not affirmative, restorative justice is, you know, uh, would be the more, in some cases, the more appropriate um, response to sexual violence. Is that what you both think? That That's what I'm picking up, but I just want to clarify if that's what, if, that's what you believe would be the best kind of investment. Yeah, I, I definitely think that's where we need to be focusing our attention um, moving forward. I think it's what gives survivors an outcome that meets their needs, their justice needs, and um, you know avoids the trauma that we know occurs within the context of a traditional criminal justice system. And and you, Sean, what in in terms of uh, restorative justice. Did you have any comments about that? Well, I, I, I repeat that I agree um, that we need to um, provide more readily available to alternatives to criminal prosecution. Um, and <clears throat> pardon me, on the question of evidence um, supporting or not supporting uh, affirmative consent, but I think the, the reverse is true also, that there is no evidence that um, introducing the change such as we have in 2022, the requirements the accused do something to find out whether the complainant is consenting. There's no evidence that I'm aware of 
that shows that that has or will lead to uh, just outcomes in more cases. Um, so uh, it, it, the impact is uh, can't be quantified or measured in that way, I don't think. Um, all that I can speak from as a uh, criminal trial lawyer is my experience of, of many cases that I can think of uh, where that change might have made an, an unfair difference in the outcome. Um, but we can both agree that uh, there are inherent limitations to um, the capacity of criminal trials to uh, deliver justice and to hold offenders accountable and provide rec recognition for victim survivors. And we have to look at alternative ways uh, of uh, facilitating that. Thanks, Sean. I think it's fair to say that both of you um, have reached the conclusion that the, the law is probably not the best tool to resolve or to address sexual violence. Um, so uh, we've run out of time, actually. So um, that's what I was going to leave it on, if there's no other comments. Uh, well, uh, sometimes um, the law is the right place. Um, you know, sometimes uh, sexual offences are very heinous um, and they deserve severe punishment and um, nothing less is appropriate. So um, I'm not saying it's never appropriate, but um, there are certainly many cases in which it is not the best way to go. Yeah, yeah. I suppose what I was getting at is more in line with cultural changes through the law, but yeah, I absolutely take your point. Uh, okay, well, thank you both so much. You have been listening to Done By Law on 3CR on 855 AM. It's the 20th of September, 2022, with your hosts, Dylan and Jeremy. You can listen to this show on your radio, online, and wherever you get your podcasts, like Apple Podcasts or Spotify.